All right, all right. Awesome, lots of hellos this morning. All right, just ha when you're ready, just take a seat and we can get the sermon started. <laughs> Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to H2O Church. Uh, my name is Lucas. Yeah. Glad you guys are excited. My name is Lucas Myers. If you don't know me already, I'm on staff with H2O Church Cincinnati. I'm excited to bring the word to you guys this morning. Um, yeah, so we have not gone through Acts 27 yet. Uh, there's probably some scripture-guided reading out there, but I want to just recap a little bit about what's happening in our series in Acts. So we've been going through the book of Acts this summer, and we're almost done. We are now starting Acts chapter 28, which is really exciting. So previously in Acts 27, we left all with Paul being under custody, and he's setting sail for Rome. They ended up getting in some trouble with the seas and the cargo on board, going 14 nights without food, without a lot of sleep, and in the middle of the ocean as they're trying to find some land. Paul encourages them on this voyage in Acts 27, and in verses 23 through 26, he says, For last night, an angel of the God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. It is necessary for you to appear before Caesar. Indeed, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. So take courage, men, because I believe God that it will be just the way it was told to me. But we have to run aground on some island. We also see in Acts 23, 11, God speaking to Paul, saying, The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. They then find this unknown island, and we're going to be talking about this unknown island today. It's called Malta, and run their ship aground along a sandbar to then swim safely into shore. It's pretty cold water, too. They're swimming in the winter, so it's pretty uncomfortable. So we know that through these two scriptures, through God's promises, that Paul is going to arrive in Rome. God is going to get Paul to Rome. But first, the Lord is going to use this sudden shipwreck that occurs at the end of Acts 27 and Paul's status as a Roman prisoner to bring the gospel to a people who would have otherwise never heard it before. So my goal today, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is to help change your perspective about the power, provision, and purpose of our Almighty God. So let's pray. God, we just thank you so much that we get to come and worship you today. Lord, you're just so good, and yeah, we're, we're here to glorify you. Like, today is all about you. Yesterday was all about you, and, and tomorrow is all about you. And we're so thankful that we get to live our lives to glorify you, to know you and make you known. Um, God, you're just so good to us and so gracious. God, you're the God of peace and the, the God of comfort. And so as we go amongst our trials and our circumstances, as we're in school or out of school, Lord, you are with us. That's such a simple yet profound truth that you're with us. And so God, may we glorify you today. May we fall more madly in love with you today. May we grow in intimacy with you today. God, I pray that you would speak through me today. If there's anything that's not of you, it falls straight through the floor. God, we just want you. So may your Holy Spirit convict all of us. May your Holy Spirit exhort us to follow you obediently and that our obedience would be worship to you, Lord. We love you, and I pray this all in your son's awesome name. Amen. So cool. Acts 28. If you guys have your Bibles, you can open up with me. Verses are also going to be on the screen. So we're going to start in Acts 28, 1 through 2. It says, Once safely ashore, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The local people showed us extraordinary kindness. 
They lit a fire and took us all in since it was raining and cold. So I'm going to give a little background information about Malta, some historical things that happen and just anything about it. We don't really know much about Malta. I never knew anything about Malta going into this sermon. So I looked it up. It's a rocky island, and it's located 62 miles south of Sicily in the Mediterranean Sea. So there's a lot of things happen, happening in the Mediterranean Sea. It's a good place for the gospel to actually be planted. It's about 17 miles long and 9 miles wide. It's a pretty big island. And at the time of Paul's temporary visit by shipwreck, Malta was part of the Roman Empire and overseen by an official that we're later going to read about in verse 7. His name is Publius. Now, I want to make something clear before going more into this passage. So we know that the writer of Acts is Luke, and Luke is making mere observations of what is happening in Malta. He's present with Paul, and he's recording testimony of what is happening. You know, there's no clear mention that the gospel was ever preached to this people group in Malta. But for 27 chapters in Acts, we have seen the early disciples, the early apostles, and the early church spread the gospel like wildfire. And so this is a safe place today that we can infer that upon reaching Malta, the unreached and the unnoticed were reached and noticed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And spoiler alert, in fact, we do know that the gospel was reached here in Malta. We can conclude that the gospel was preached here in Malta with historical identification that the bay was shipwrecked on now what is called St. Paul's Bay. So they named the bay after Paul. And that Publius, the leading official that we're going to talk about later, he became the first bishop of Malta. Also, churches were planted in Malta, and the Cathedral of Medina is notorious amongst the island. So Malta was one of the first Roman colonies to begin following Christ and preaching his name, which is pretty cool. So we see in this passage that there's also great hospitality and kindness of the local people here in Malta. This would be a great place of opportunity for Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus, the three Christians here that they mention, to converse and share the good news of the gospel that has saved their own lives. So let's continue. We're going to continue into Acts 28, 3 through 6. It says, As Paul gathered a bundle of brushwood and put it on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the local people saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to one another, This man, no doubt, is a murderer. Even though he escaped the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But he shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no harm. They expected that he would begin to swell up or suddenly drop dead. After they waited a long time and saw nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Whoa, that's crazy. (laughs) This is a crazy series of events right here. So I'm just going to break it down for us by highlighting God's power and God's provision. I think those are the two things I see the most in this passage when annotating and interpreting it myself with the Holy Spirit. So let's get into it. The first thing we see in this passage is that Paul has been serving by grabbing brushwood to help maintain this fire, and then he's bitten by a dangerous, poisonous, probably poisonous viper, and it wouldn't get off his hand, fasten itself on his hand. So from this, the very first point I want to point out is that God's power and God's provision sparks humility and obedience. God's power and provision sparks humility and obedience. Paul, the great apostle, is gathering firewood for and everyone else. (laughs) His servant heart is clearly displayed through his actions here. And we know that Paul was very faithful to God and he was living as a true servant to him. But this did not keep him from this trial. His humble service brought out a viper and not a viper who nibbles, (laughs) but a viper who fastened itself on his hand. But Paul didn't let that bother him. 
He didn't scream, why God? I can't take any more of this. What the heck? Or can't you see that I'm serving you, God? Why me? Paul also didn't look at those sitting by the fire and say, you lazy people. If you had gathered wood instead of me, this wouldn't have happened to me. I wouldn't have been been bit by a snake. So personally, one of my, I I always call my fears the, the three S's, sharks, spiders, and snakes. I am afraid of snakes. I'm terrified of snakes. If it's a garden snake, I'm out. Um, So personally, I would freak out if this was to happen to me. But there was something about Paul's reaction that seemed so calm and so unconcerned about what just happened. And he just casually shakes it off. It's about like, I I just get bit by a snake. Here's the fire. Okay. Off. Off with my hand. Okay. It's crazy. Like, that's not a normal response. But why was Paul's reaction so calm and unconcerned? It's as simply as Paul having faith. Paul had faith. And so we can conclude that God's power and provision builds faith. God's power and provision builds faith. In verse 4, it says, When the local people saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to one another, This man, no doubt, is a murderer. Even though he has escaped the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. So it's actually crazy to think, when he says no doubt here, the people who witnessed the snake bot, they had no doubt. They had no doubt, and you can replace that with faith. They actually had faith that Paul would die, that they would, he would die by the bite of a poisonous viper. And they probably had reason to believe that he would die, maybe seeing others being bitten by a poisonous viper. They were ultimately convinced, and they had faith that Paul would just drop dead right here. So yes, these natives had faith that Paul would die. But what did Paul have? Paul had no doubt. Paul had faith in the one true almighty God that he would be okay. Because he, know where, he knew where he was going. He was going to Rome. So he knew that he was going to be unaffected by these circumstances, by faith. You know, we see in verse 6 that the natives even expected that he would begin to swell up or suddenly drop dead. What did Paul expect? He expected life. He expected to live from our God, Jesus Christ, who is the life himself. He expected life. He had faith. Paul also had complete faith and reason to be okay and content in his trial or circumstance. So next, we can conclude that God's power and provision brings security and comfort. God's power and provision brings security and comfort. You know, like I mentioned earlier, the Lord had spoken a promise over Paul in Acts 23 and Acts 27, that Paul was going to get to Rome. It wasn't so much that nothing would stop Paul from getting to Rome as it was nothing would stop God's promise from being fulfilled. Paul could take God's past faithfulness as a promise of future blessing and a promise of future protection. Our God is perfect in fulfilling his promises anyways. He's a perfect track record. So what's crazy in this passage is the natives' response to Paul's suffering no harm. In verse 6, it says, After they waited a long time and saw nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. They called Paul a god. Obviously, we know that Paul is not a god, (laughs) nor would he ever be a god, nor would he want to be perceived as a god. But Paul was seen in extremes here by the natives. Either he was terribly evil, who committed crimes, he came here on this boat, he's a prisoner, he did some bad stuff, or he's a god. He was seen in extremes here. But in truth, we know that Paul was neither a criminal deserving punishment, nor was he a god. We even saw um, in Life Group this past week, like King Agrippa found nothing wrong with him, 
but he appealed to Caesar. That's why he was on his way to Rome. So this was all the more reason that we must be cautious about what others think of us, either for good or for bad. And in Acts 28.11, Paul did something about this. So we see later in the scriptures, we know that Paul and his crew stayed in Malta for three months. So Paul spent time with these people, even though that was their first perception of who, God, or who Paul was to, perceive, to be perceived as a god, Paul did something about that, and he spent time witnessing to the people here in Malta. What was he witnessing them about? The gospel. He was pointing them to Jesus in everything, and he was leading them to saving faith in Jesus as king. They even named a bay after him, which I spoiled earlier. It was called St. Paul's Bay. Well, who is Paul a saint of? He's a saint of Jesus. He's a saint of Jesus. And so we know that Paul was pointing to Jesus in everything. He was not going to allow their initial perceptions to, for them to continue to believe that, in, that he was a God, because he's obviously not. And we also see here in verse 6 that God's power and provision in and through Paul changed their minds about Paul. But we can also infer that God's power and provision changed their minds about everything. Changed their hearts and their minds about everything. Their minds were blown. <laughs> they just saw Paul get bitten by a viper, and he was okay. He just shook it off into the fire. He was unchanged. Now, this would be a perfect opportunity to follow up with the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's continue into the passage. Acts 28, 7 through 10. Now, in the area around that place was an estate belonging to the leading man of the island, named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us hospitality for three days. Publius' father was in bed suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went to him, and praying and laying hands on him, he healed him. After this, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. So they heaped many honors on us, and when we sailed, they gave us what we needed. For what Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus had just gone through at sea, they were graciously and extremely blessed and in a short season of relief and replenishment by meeting Publius and those on Malta. Again, we see that this is a place of hospitality, a place of great service, and a place of great care. And even in Luke's description of Publius as the leading man of the island, he's extremely accurate here because that's the technical term for the person who represented Rome in that place. So we see here in this passage that Publius' father is sick. He's sick with fever, and he's sick with dysentery. If you don't know what dysentery is... I didn't either, so I looked it up. Dysentery is the infection of the intestines resulting in severe diarrhea with the presence of blood and mucus in the feces. Not fun. That is not fun. So immediately we see Paul go to Publius' father. It's weird. I think in today's culture, if we were to see someone with fever or dysentery, we would actually not want to be near them because they may be infectious or disgusting and that would just be gross and we wouldn't want that either. And so I know that my initial reaction would probably be like, eh, like let's let him heal on his own and, if, and maybe, I'll, maybe I'll pray away, away from him. That seems like the, the better choice for me. But for Paul, he went to him. His sickness did not affect Paul's view of him. And Luke's words about Paul's actions speaks willingness over Paul. Paul was willing to notice Publius' father, even in his dysentery and fever, even in his sickness. What does Paul do? He prays and lays hands on this man that he just met with no hesitancy, but complete faith that God would do something. He doesn't just sit back and pray, which is still powerful. If we sit back and pray, it's still powerful. Trust me, prayer is powerful. 
But Paul did something by attending to the man's needs and laying hands on him. That was powerful. And Paul's willingness actually reminds me so much of Jesus as he would go to individuals in his ministry and he would lay hands on the sick and he would heal them with such power and such provision and such compassion. Paul had those things. And so what do we see? Paul's father is healed. Praise God. Paul's father is healed. Or I mean, Publius' father is healed. But it doesn't mention that God healed this man, but that Paul healed this man. So I want to reiterate what I mentioned earlier that Luke is recording this observations of what is currently happening. These are mere observations. So Paul did not heal this man. (laughs) Paul did not have this special power to heal this man. Paul did not do this so that he could get glory to himself. We know that that's not consistent with the scriptures. Philippians 2.13 says, and I want to mention this, that Trev a couple weeks ago mentioned this in his sermon. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. 100% God healed this man. We know that. Yet it happened through the willingness and activity of Paul. God did the work, but Paul made himself ready and available for this work. This was all for the glory of God. So I just want to reiterate that and mention that. And in verse 9 and 10 it says, After this, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. So they heaped many honors on us, and when we sailed, they gave us what we needed. So what we can take away from the end of this passage is that God's power and God's provision is attractive. God's power and God's provision is attractive. What was crazy and radical to those looking to Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus' life was attractive and desirable to those who lived in Malta. Those sick, and we could even say poor in spirit, knew they needed the healing and freedom that Publius' father received by the power of the Holy Spirit. And even the word for healed here at the end is not the customary term for miraculous healing. The word in Greek, and I may butcher this, but it's therapuo, therapuo. It means to serve, to do service, to heal, cure, restore to health, or in simple terms, to receive medical attention. It's very possible with Luke's previous occupation, being a doctor or a physician, that he served here in Malta for these three months as a medical missionary. So I want to encourage those here in the, in, the, in the medical field, I want to encourage you to continue to serve the Lord by serving those in need and sick because you're doing amazing things for the Lord. We see that this is even biblical, that we should be serving those who are sick and in need, therapeutic, to serve them, to heal, to cure and restore them to health and to give them medical attention. So you're doing awesome things for the, Kendall, for, for the kingdom. And in this passage, by faith, the Lord revealed his power to be made perfect in Paul's weaknesses, protecting him and providing for him, while also providing testimony and witness for others to be healed and to believe in Jesus Christ through the power of the gospel. So I want to continue with you by looking into God's purpose for us as we walk with him. Before we get into God's purpose, I want to mention what God's purpose is not. God's purpose is not these things. God's purpose is not for us to graduate college. I know a lot of us here are in college and are wanting to graduate. That's a good thing, but that's not your purpose. Your purpose is not to graduate college. A lot of people here probably think that their purpose is to get married one day. I am recently engaged. (laughs) 
that's still not my purpose, and that's not my fiance's purpose, and I would hope that would not be our purpose. Our purpose is not to get married here on earth. Even for me growing up, I thought my purpose was to win the World Series one day. That's not my purpose. My purpose is not to win the World Series. I know a lot of us want to have kids one day. That's not your purpose. And if you do have kids, that's still not your purpose. Your purpose is not to have kids. I know a lot of us want to work a full-time job. And I'm working a full-time job. That's still not my purpose. And that's not your purpose either. And I know a lot of us want to be successful, which is a good thing. That's not your purpose. Being successful is not your purpose. And these things are not Christianity. These things are not following Jesus. These things can be a part of the purpose, but not the purpose of our lives themselves. I want to reiterate that these things are very good. These things that I just mentioned are good, and you should partake in these things if that is what God is calling you to do. But if that is the purpose themselves, then you are living a hollow life, and you're missing direct innate purpose from God. He cares about these things that I just mentioned, but not as much as what I'm about to tell you. He cares about these things, but not as much as what I'm about to tell you. So God's purpose is satisfyingly for all of us. It's for every single person in the world, whether they like to admit that or acknowledge that or not. This is our purpose. We've mentioned this a lot in this Acts series, but this is our purpose. I'm going to reiterate it because it's good. Our purpose is to know God and make him known. Our purpose is to know God and make him known. Every single person in this room, you were made to know God and make him known, whether you like that or not. I would like to encourage all of you to seriously look deep inside your soul and ask God and ask yourself if your soul has truly been fulfilled with your purpose to know God and make him known. And for those who do know God and do make him known, I want to exhort you to continue to know God and make him known because that's your purpose. And as we continue to read and study the Bible, it's so clear that as we look up to those in the faith, as we look up to these, these characters, even going into Hebrews 11 and looking at all these characters in the faith, and specifically Paul here, Paul lived his life to know God and make him known. We sometimes see Paul as this like extreme Christian. Paul lived his life to know God and make him known. It's so simple, and he did that. He knew God and he made, he made him known. And so what happened in Malta is important because it showcases another example of God using disasters to bring about his plan. Paul had been arrested. He was a prisoner. Then the ship on which he was being transported was caught in a terrible storm. <clears throat> For two weeks, the sailors fought the storm, barely eating and barely sleeping. Then the ship ran aground and broke apart. Everyone on board had to swim for shore. And none of those events were good in themselves. I would personally not want to partake in those events. That would not be very fun. But as Paul had written earlier in Romans, in Romans 8, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. The shoreline the refugees found was that of Malta, and the people of Malta had never heard the gospel. God, in his wisdom, had arranged for his evangelist, Paul, to wash up on their shore with no way to leave until the whole island had heard the good news of the gospel. We know that God still uses tragedies in our lives to bring about his good plan. And when our lives are surrendered to him, no event is wasted. No heartache, no disappointment, no pain is meaningless when we entrust it to the one who knows the end from the beginning. And Malta reminds us of that promise. And because of this, I want to list out some of the series of events 
that we've read in Acts where God has displayed his power, his purpose, his provision over Paul and through Paul for others to know gospel or for others to know the gospel. And I want to let God's power, provision, and purpose speak for itself. So in Acts 9, Paul's on his way to Damascus to persecute and kill Christians. He then encountered Jesus and gave his life to him and started sharing the gospel himself. Acts 13, Paul encounters a sorcerer, Elymas. Paul rebukes Elymas, and by the power of the Spirit, Elymas goes blind in the name of the Lord. Because of this, the proconsul heard the gospel, and they believed, and they were astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Acts 14, after healing a man lame from birth, those in Lystra believed Paul and Barnabas were gods themselves. Pretty similar to Malta. After trying to convince them they weren't gods and pointing to the one true God, Paul was stoned and near death. And some people even believe that Paul died and rose from the dead. God's mercy was upon Paul and he survived. To continue making disciples and encouraging them, saying it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas experienced sharp disagreement and part ways. God used this division for good, and he sent out Paul and Silas together and Barnabas and John Mark together to different places for the gospel to be reached across the Mediterranean. Acts 16, Paul and Silas get thrown in prison. They're stripped of their clothes, beaten with rods, flogged severely, and guarded very carefully in the inner prison with stocks. God delivered them from their cells as they were praying and worshiping, leading them out to save the life of their prison guard, who probably flogged them, and was about to take his own life. They then led him and his family to saving faith in Christ. Wow, that's pretty cool. Acts 17, Paul preaches in the middle of Areopagus. Some ridiculed him, like some do to us when we share our faith, like some do to us when we go out and share the gospel faithfully. But some came to listen to Paul in his teaching about Jesus. Acts 19, Paul preached boldly about Jesus for some to respond with hardness, disbelief, and slander of the way being Jesus. He stayed in the lecture hall of Tyrannus every day for two years that all the residents there of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, would hear the word of the Lord. Acts 21 through 22, Paul reaches Jerusalem, was seized by some Jews from the province of Asia and was constantly beaten, taken into custody. Paul then gives his defense before the Jerusalem mob and they get very angry when he mentions the gospel being sent to the Gentiles. As Paul is about to be scourged, which likely kills you, Paul mentions his Roman citizenship, which God uses to protect him and to save his life. Acts 23, 40-plus Jewish assassins plot to kill Paul, and their plot fails. God had promised Paul would reach Rome, and he uses Paul's sister's son to transport Paul to Antipatris. Acts 24 through 26, Paul, again, falsely accused and gives his defense before Felix, Festus, and Agrippa, which was opportunity to share his faith and God, through Christ Jesus his Lord. And they find nothing wrong with Paul after he appeals to Caesar, making his way for Paul to sail to Rome, for him to later crash into Malta and plant the gospel there for those who were unreached. This is crazy. When we look at the book of Acts, there's a lot of stuff that happens. All these events are crazy. And God prevailed. His promises prevailed. His word prevailed. We see that Paul had every reason to trust in God arriving in Malta here in Acts 28. He arrived in weakness, displaying God's power, displaying God's provision with every effort to know God and make him known here. 
All I can really say is that God's story for us is bigger and it's greater, and we get to be a part of it. If you haven't noticed already, like I just mentioned, we've been talking a lot about crazy things happening in the Bible, specifically in Acts. But you can even say that these series or events are radical, or even that the whole book of Acts is radical, or even that the whole Bible is radical. When I read, meditate, and interpret this passage for what it is and what Luke is saying, I get this truth. In the kingdom of God, radical is normal. In the kingdom of God, radical is normal. Everything we have been talking about in this passage, and the entirety of the scriptures, the scriptures scream, radical is normal. I'll get more into that, but I want to ask you guys a question. Just like I mentioned earlier about Paul being an extreme Christian, do you believe that Paul was a radical Christian? Most people do. Most people believe that Paul's a radical Christian and that they wouldn't believe that the Lord would ever do similar things that God did through Paul through themselves. The answer is no. (laughs) Paul is not a radical Christian. Paul is a normal Christian, just like every other Christian. There's no such thing as radical Christianity. There's no such thing as, as, as extreme Christians. And what we've, been, what we've been reading in Acts is not super Christianity. It's not the highest level of faith. This is Christianity. Normal Christianity. Normal faith in Jesus Christ. What is perceived to be radical by the world's standards is but normal in the kingdom of God. And we sometimes find ourselves shocked when, for example, God answers our prayers. We sometimes find ourselves shocked when God answers our prayers. It's like we, we, we know that this has been printed all throughout Scripture, that God answers our prayers, that he hears our prayers, that he's going to do something with our prayers. And then we pray and God answers, and we're like, whoa, I didn't know that would happen. That's crazy. Didn't think that would happen. And then God answers our prayers. We think it's radical. Well, no, it's not radical. It's normal in the kingdom of God. It's normal for God to answer our prayers. So we should be praying because he is going to answer them. We sometimes find ourselves shocked when, for example, God heals someone. I know some people in this room, it, like you probably struggle with the idea that God can even heal. I did too, and sometimes I still do. But the truth is, is that God does heal, and it's imprinted all throughout Scripture. And we think it's radical, but it's not. It's normal. Healing is normal in the kingdom of God. And so when God heals, it's normal. We shouldn't be shocked at that. We sometimes find ourselves shocked when, for example, a hard-hearted person comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ. It's normal. It's not radical. A hard-hearted person coming to faith in Jesus Christ is normal in the kingdom of God. All of these examples are expected in the kingdom of God. Trust me, this truth is not to deter you away from being excited about these things, and when God works, when God answers our prayers, when God saves someone, when God heals someone. In fact, the Bible commands you to rejoice over these things, to be excited about these things. I encourage you, please be excited about these things. So trust me, this truth is not to deter you away from these things, but to challenge you to expect these things to happen, to expect these things to happen when we pray to expect these things to happen when we share, and to expect these things to happen when we walk faithfully in the Lord, to know him and make him known. 
If you are a follower of Christ, you are a normal Christian. Normal Christians do radical things. Normal Christians do radical things for the kingdom of God because they're normal in the kingdom. That's the truth. And when I go out and do evangelism, I like to ask not yet Christians this question. If you were to die today on a scale of zero to 100%, 100% being getting to heaven, how likely would you be in heaven? Most people do not say 100%. But a lot of people will give me a number probably in between 50 to 80%. Because almost everybody believes that they're a good enough person to get to heaven by their own standards. Like, hey, I did this thing. I walked, walked the lady across the street. I paid, paid my dues, gave money to an orphanage. It's just like, yeah, I'm going to heaven one day. Like, those are all good things, trust me. But they believe by their own standards that they're getting to heaven. But what most people don't know is that you're either 100% a follower of Christ, saved by grace through faith, or you're not one at all. There's no in-between or chances of getting into heaven. That doesn't exist. If you're 50%, you're actually zero. There's no such thing as like, I may get into heaven one day in the kingdom of God. You're either a radical but normal Christian or not one at all. Some people are stuck in deceit, believing if that you just go to church, give your monthly tithe, call yourself a Christian, and be a quote-unquote good person, then you're on your way towards eternal life with God. If you can relate to that or would call yourself that someone, you need to repent. You need to turn from your sin and trust in the one who died and bled for you and set you free from your sin. Radically, yet simply know God and make him known. I want to break this myth that there are such things as levels of faith. There's no such thing as levels of faith. You are either saved by grace through faith alone, saved by our gracious God, who sent his one and only son to die for you, to set you free from, from, from your sin, from our sins, by his blood, or you're not saved at all. And so there's a bar of salvation. You're either at that bar or you're not at all. You're at the very bottom. You're either at the bar of salvation or you're not at all. There's no in-between. I was in Southeast Asia on a mission trip to preach the gospel for two months last year. I was having a conversation with one of my mentors. His name's Nate. And we were talking about how cool it was to be here. How cool it was to be in Southeast Asia. How radical it was to fly across the world and to share the gospel to those who need it. And in a split second, the Holy Spirit hit me like a train in the morning. I realized that what I was doing, which was so hard, so radical, and so risky, was only but normal in God's eyes. I was living out the calling God had on my life to know him and make him known. That's when I realized that radical faith is normal in the kingdom of God. I want to share this testimony with you guys because it's one of the coolest things that God has ever done through me that I've gotten to share with others. It was a moment in my life where I had faith the size of a mustard seed. I was getting breakfast with one of my fraternity brothers. He's a believer, and, and we were just walking to the destination, and I see this man across the street, and the Holy Spirit tells me to pray for him. I was like, all right, let's do it. That's normal. Holy Spirit tells you to pray for people. You should listen to the Holy Spirit. So I tell Josh, I'm like, hey, Josh, the Holy Spirit wants me to pray for this man. He's like, all right, go for it. So we cross the street, and this man is like stumbling on his feet. 
it was kind of scary. And I say, sir, like, are you okay? Like, I'd love to pray for you. And the man just falls and face plants on the concrete. And he starts to twitch, and he's, like, shaking. And I'm like, what the heck? My first instinct was to lay my hand on him and pray for him. I Even later, my friend Josh was like, why didn't you just call 911? I was like, hey, I was told to pray for him. So I lay my hand and I pray for him, and I ask the Lord to heal this man by his blood and to cast out any demons in Jesus' name. And I just kept praying. And then in a sudden, he just stopped shaking. I was like, maybe he's okay, maybe he's okay. He wasn't. He wasn't okay. And a nurse comes out of nowhere, and she's like, do you need help? Do you need help? I was like, absolutely I need help. I don't know what to do here. She comes out of nowhere, and she feels his pulse, and she goes, he has no pulse. He just died. And Josh and I, we stepped probably five feet back, and we're like, what the heck is happening today? This is the weirdest day ever. Do we even want to get breakfast? <laughs> and then in about five seconds, this man just miraculously stands up. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. I can't explain it other than that was God. God had healed this man and saved his life, and he had called me to pray for him. And he was in disbelief. He was holding his heart after he just had a heart attack. And he was, he's like, what's my name? What's your name? Where am I? I don't know where I am. And we're just trying to try to take care of him, and he didn't want any help. And he just walked away. It was the craziest thing. This man should be in a hospital. He just had a heart attack, and he was just okay. And at the moment, I was thinking, this is radical. This is crazy. And then in a split second, I was like, no, this is normal. This is the kingdom of God. God healing this man was normal. It was normal for God to do something like that. It was expected for God to answer my prayer after I was called to pray for him. And so I want to emphasize here for those who are thinking, what does radicals normal look like for me? What does radicals normal look like for our church and for all who follow Jesus? You know, first of all, I don't think we should go out and willingly try to look for persecution or any poisonous vipers out there to cling to our hands. I don't think we should be doing that. But rather, I believe we should be going into our circumstances, trusting in our good God for what he has in store for us, for what he has in store for his kingdom, to know him and make him known. Luke 17.10 says it perfectly. I was having a conversation with Trev about this a couple years ago, and it knocked my socks off. It says, in the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty Jesus is saying that. All I wrote from that is we should fear God, we should keep his commands, and we should be faithful to him. It's as simple as that. It's as simple and profound as that. And so you were qualified to live the radical yet normal life when you believed in Jesus and were filled with his Holy Spirit. You were saved and qualified in an instant by him who called you by name. And like Jesus' last words to his disciples in Matthew 28, he calls us to go and make disciples of all nations. And so I want to call you to go and know God and make him known. What's cool about normal faith in Jesus, too, is that normal faith is radical to those looking in. Normal faith is radical to those looking in. So here's the privilege. Here's the honor that we get to, to walk in in following Christ. We get to faithfully be holy and set apart for him and to others. That's a privilege. 
That's an honor to be set apart. Here's the thing. The world is going to look into our lives. That's going to happen. Scripture says so. Matthew 5.14 says it. You are the light of this world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. H2O Church is a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Your life is a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. We collectively and individually are the light of this world because Jesus says so. And so people are going to look into our lives and they're going to think we're different. And they may, they may even think we're weird. So what? Who cares? Because they're going to ask us why. Why are you so kind? You know, everyone's been a jerk to you. Why do you have to be so nice to others? Why do you love when no one loves you? Like, why do you still love your family when your family has rejected you? Why are you so kind all the time? Why are you at peace? I don't have peace. Where'd your peace come from? People are going to ask questions about our lives. And so I want to share with you all some personal experiences where this has been profound, where this has changed my life and this has changed my outlook on ministry. Starts with me getting to know Christ. I put my faith in Jesus in 2020 in the summer. I came back to school thinking I need a community. I was very hurt by my, my home church before I was a Christian. And I was very lonely. I um, was tempted to believe that I was alone, that no one cared about me, that I was unnoticed. No one wanted to, to reach me with the gospel, with the love of Jesus. And I, I boldly stepped into life group. I heard about H2O. And I got connected. I went to life group and immediately heard about this thing called the well. If you haven't done the well, you should do the well. It's awesome. You should do the well. You get paired up with a mentor, and then you get to go learn how to follow Jesus. It's amazing. Well, as I went to the first Sunday where we had a, we had, where we had a, a teaching about how to follow Jesus, I walked in, and there were so many people. So many people was talking to each other, and no one was talking to me. And I was convinced that no one cared about me, and no one wanted to talk to me. And as I sat down and was contemplating leaving the place, someone sat down next to me. And his name was Trev. And Trev asked me for my name. I said, my name's Lucas. And he said, my name's Trevor. It's as simple as that. And then he asked me for my story. And I got to share my story with him. And it was the first time in my life where I felt like I could let someone in. And that they cared for me and loved me and noticed me. At the well-closing ceremonies, I ended up thanking Trev for that, and he didn't even remember that even happened. Um, and that's not to shame him at all. I don't even blame him. Because what was radical to me was only normal to him. And he did it with joy. And he loved me with joy. And he cared for me with joy. So thanks, Trev. I appreciate that. Um, my next testimony I want to share with you to let you in on this idea that normal is radical to those looking in is with my well mentor. His name's Bradley. Um, at the time, I didn't know that he'd be my best friend, be my best man one day. Um, but he, he was there for me, and he taught me how to follow Jesus, and it was awesome. And I was that person when you go to church, and church ends, and you immediately walk out. You're like, I'm gone. I'm not going to socialize. It's not me. Well, Bradley caught me on the way out, and he said, hey, let's go get BB Bob. I was like, whoa, that's awesome. He's like, my friend Seth's in town, and he's back from co-op. I meet this red-headed guy with long hair, and I'm like, whoa, that's, 
this is cool. Um, long story short, we got BB Bop, <laughs> and it was awesome. And th- those two memories, I always share in my testimony because they're two of the most profound things that have ever happened to me in my entire life. You guys are probably thinking, wow, that's pretty simple. Yes, it's simple. I was invited to get a meal and I was asked what my name was and it changed my life. And what seemed normal to them was radical to me and God transformed my life through these moments. So we have Blitz Week coming up. Let's go. Blitz Week's coming up. Are you kidding me? This is, this is literally a mission trip. Like freshmen are coming into our campus that we do not know yet who are probably going to be our best friends one day. Who, are, who probably don't know Jesus right now and they're going to meet Jesus. So let's get excited about that. We're going to be meeting a lot of new students coming into UC. So I want to ask you all to remember this idea that radical is normal. And normal is radical to those looking in. I want to exhort you guys, that you guys can be that person for somebody else, that you can just normally live your life for God and knowing him and making him known and change somebody's life. And the Holy Spirit will work through you by being faithful to God and living out the purpose that God has called you to live out, to know him and make him known. That's what you're called to do. You're gonna look different. You're gonna look radical to those looking in and you're gonna change lives because God is working through you. So I'm gonna call the band to come back up. And I'm gonna pray. I'm just gonna ask God to convict us, and to encourage us, and to challenge us to live the radical yet normal life and to be normal in the kingdom of God and that normal is radical to those looking in. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. God, just thank you so much. God, thank you that you've called us to be faithful. God, thank you that you are faithful to us and that you love us and that you care about us and you want us to know you and make you known. Like our life is to glorify you. And so Lord, I just thank you that you love us and you take care of us, that you build our faith, that you spark humility and obedience that your love and your power and your provision and your purpose is attractive and desirable. God, you're just so good. You're so good to us. You're so good to our campus. And I just pray that you would change our hearts, that you would change our minds, and that we would live radical yet normal lives for you, Lord. And that our, our normal lives for you would be radical to those looking in. Help us to love you more, to imitate your son Jesus, and to walk in the ways of the Holy Spirit. You're so, so good to us, Lord, and we love you. We pray this all in your son's awesome name. Amen.